Hi everyone, welcome to my podcast. It's called Hearsay and my name is Saya. This week I'm interviewing my friend Holly Throsby. Holly has a new album out with her band Seeker Lover Keeper. Uh, That band is with Sarah Blasco and Sally Seltman of course. The album is called Wild Seeds and came out on the 9th of August and it's absolutely beautiful. Go check it out if you have time. Holly has many solo albums of course um, on her own and has also published two novels which are also amazing, Goodwood and Cedar Valley. She's an incredibly prolific and special artist, so go listen to and read all of her things. Um, We recorded this interview earlier this year while I was in Sydney at my friend's house, so, you know, there are some uh, external sounds, cars, planes, wind, um, but nobody cares about that, do they? Holly's Strange Show Story was done by my dear friend Vanessa Norlander. She does some beautiful illustrations that you can check out on her Instagram at Ness underscore Norlander. She's also an incredibly gifted photographer, so go check out some of her pics on Instagram. Remember, you can see all of these drawings on Insta at Hearsay Podcast or on the Hearsay Facebook page. Rate and leave me a comment on iTunes. It helps people be able to find the podcast, which is really nice. Thank you again for all of your sweet messages. I love reading them and uh, thank you for your ongoing lovely feedback. I hope you are all keeping well. This is Hearsay number 43. Holly Thrusby. lovely to see you as always it's been ages i know it's been how long years i don't know well i went to your book launch in brisbane oh yeah we had dinner afterwards yeah had um, some italian that was nice yeah that was for the first book so that yeah. was maybe three years ago yeah yeah i'm about halfway through your second book i was really hoping to read it before i spoke to you and life just got away from me i understand but i've been really enjoying it I'm glad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But before we get to like writing prose, my first question is always, do you have a point in your life where you knew that you wanted to make music? Um, Well, I can't really pinpoint it because I would have been so little um, because I started playing guitar in about year four, I think. Um, And I knew that I just really wanted to be a guitar player. Um... And then I've weirdly found a guitar leaning up against... We, we were renting this house um, and it was leaning up against the kind of near the front wall of the house, which was next to a school and a vacant lot and a dead-end street. But there was a, a, an adult-sized nylon string guitar. Wow. And so I was. I thought it was just, you know, sent from the heavens or something. <laughs> and I've still got that guitar, actually. Wow. I sort of just carted around with me, even though it's not an amazing guitar. But um, it was too big for me, but I was really stoked and sort of started playing on it and then why um, did you want to do you remember why you wanted to play guitar I you thought listening it was to cool I think I just thought it was really cool was there like an artist that you were like I want to do that um I did watch that movie La Bamba you know <laughs> when I was a kid I really liked yeah. it with uh the Richie Valens <laughs> I remember. story yeah. it was a really sad movie it is a really sad and it yeah. just like really and also like quite full-on I guess for my age at the time mm-hmm. but I still bit I was sexy a little bit sexy mm-hmm. a little bit violent mm-hmm. alcohol um 
pe- broken people yeah. doing their thing. And um, you were like, I want to do that. Well, I just thought, I think I just thought those performance scenes were so cool. I thought the guitar playing was so cool. Um, yeah, because I, my mum had taken me to piano lessons, which I just was never really interested in, and also violin lessons. Yeah, I had them too. Uh, hated that. And so my hard. violin teacher told me that I would never play guitar oh. because something to do with my fingers or my oh. hands or something. And I was like, lady, I'm like in year four. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you. So I, yeah, so maybe I thought I'll show you. But um, my mum then bought me like a little classical nylon string guitar, like quite like it looked quite like a Spanish guitar. And then she took me to classical guitar lessons. But I just wanted to do rock and roll. So by high school, I had rock and roll guitar teacher. Wow. But you, so you started practicing scales and doing like finger picking it stuff. It wasn't scales so much as finger picking stuff, which I am really grateful for because yeah. I do use finger picking. Great finger as picker. A really big part of my songwriting. Yeah, definitely. Um, and of course, I would force the classical teacher, who I did still have when I was in maybe year seven to teach me things like Under the Bridge by Red Hot Chili oh, Peppers, yeah. which was a huge hit at the time. Which is also finger picky. Which is also finger picky yeah. and also quite Spanish guitar influenced yeah. as that guitar riff. Yeah. Um, and the lyrical content is also quite like, you know, Los Angeles and it's got oh, that yeah. kind of slightly Spanish-American um, or Latin-American influence. But, yeah, so, and also like I'm, I asked him to teach me the solo to Stairway to Heaven. Oh, which yeah. I, um, used to just practice endlessly along with the tape. Do you still know how to play the solo? I could play it really, really slowly. <laughs> <laughs> I learnt the solo from when I was starting to play piano. I learnt the solo from Sweet Child in Time by Deep Purple. Ah, uh, cool. It has an endless solo at the beginning and I learnt it note for note and played it along. <laughs> That's very cool. I totally understand <laughs> being a kid and being obsessed with learning something yeah. like that because I was quite obsessive. yeah. It's cool. So you want, but you so you wanted to play rock and roll. You were stuck in classical for a while, and then you got rock and roll lessons. Yeah, well, they just were kind of those lessons where you learnt um, like blues scales, oh, so yeah. you could so you could do a solo. And um, I didn't learn how to read music. Yeah, sort of more like you learnt shapes. And my guitar teacher was the guy that taught everyone in Balmain how to play guitar. Sure. And he also sort of taught us how to drink coffee because he said if you're a musician, you have to drink coffee. So I've been learning how to drink, like like how to tolerate Nescafe. <laughs> Very important. Um, and he also, I was, he it was kind of a scam to do work experience with him when you're in year ten because oh, in I don't know if you had to do work experience. I did. Well, my work experience was a week with him when I managed to, we obviously choreographed it. So my boyfriend, who was at a different school, also had oh, his work experience the same week. so clever. It was such a corrupt system. And we ended up just smoking <laughs> cigarettes and drinking Nescafe at, so at the guitar teacher's house all week. You built up your tolerance to caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I was writing songs quite early too. Like I wrote my first sort of songs in maybe five or six. Wow. And... What kind of songs are they? Are just songs with really emo lyrics that had <laughs> melodies that I liked enough to resuscitate in year seven when I started. Oh, no, maybe not year seven, maybe year eight or nine when I started my first sort of high school band. Um, I remember one of those songs I'd written in year six or something. I kind of got the melody and changed the lyrics because the lyrics were so terrible. Um, <laughs> and then again, they were still terrible, just different, <laughs> different. terrible. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I had a band in high school and I would write the songs and then we, another girl would sing the songs because I just hated my voice and thought I was a terrible Aww. singer and so I wanted to just play guitar like lead guitar and write the songs yeah but then by the end of high school I had another boyfriend in year 12 who was really encouraging of my music and he wrote songs too 
and that was a really nice way that we bonded was yeah. to play music together and That's we would lovely. record each other's songs like on um i had a mini disc recorder and he was just really encouraging to me about singing my own songs yeah so i was really grateful to him because my voice was pretty terrible like i still kind of feel sometimes i feel funny about my voice when i'm Do singing you? well just when You're i'm singing with people voice. who sing like in a really proper way yeah i guess i feel like i can carry my own songs definitely but if someone says to me you know when you get offered to do like people want you oh, to do yeah. it some kind of performance yes. thing, and they just think oh you can do this because yeah. you're a singer and i'm like i'm not that kind of singer yeah um, i can totally relate to that i have the same feeling i was actually just talking about this the other day because i played a show with four other singers and they were all like really good singers and i was saying to my friend like it felt weird being there because I sing in a certain style. I don't vibrato. I don't, you know, I yeah. don't do that. Um, I also don't have much power at all. Yeah. I, I sing really quietly. Me too. Mm. But I feel like I've heard you bellow a few times. Yeah, I can get there sometimes. With, it depends on what the song's doing. There's some some moments where I feel like I can do that. But this one time I did this, this gig for Amnesty International. It was like a charity gig. And... It was me doing a couple of my songs, which was fine, at this big dinner. And then they had everyone from Midnight Oil, who's not Peter Garrett, in this <laughs> band called The they're called the Break. Oh, so yeah. it's like Jim Magini and, you know, yeah. Rob Hurst and everyone. Although they do have Brian Ritchie from Violent Femmes on yeah. bass. But I had to stand in for Peter Garrett oh, to do, like, God. a Midnight Oil song at this, with them as my backing band. <laughs> oh, my God. What song did you do? Um, it was a song called Put Down Your Weapon and or put down that weapon and i went to the i went to rehearse it with them and you know rob Hurst like went one two three four to count it in on drums and then the yeah. band started i've never heard anything so loud in my life Whoa. and i started singing as loud as i could into the microphone they had and nobody could hear anything oh. and they all kind of laugh, <laughs> were all laughing i mean they were so lovely to me yeah. they're, they're such lovely men but I was, Did it go okay on the night? Oh, I think it was terrible. I mean, everyone said it went okay, but I didn't think it went okay. Oh. Um, <laughs> you, got, you guys, I'm not your guy. I'm not. I'm <laughs> so not Peter Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have this really lovely thing I wanted to share with you. I'd been playing music for ages with bands mm. and... Sometimes I sang, but I definitely didn't, like, ever carry a show singing by myself. Yeah. Um, and I saw you play at Splendour and it was a really long time ago. It was before I'd started recording any of my own music. Mm. And you were playing guitar and then you played some songs on keyboards and I remember watching you play and thinking you had, like, a similar sort of... not We don't have a similar voice at all, but I felt like really inspired by someone who I felt like a certain kinship with in terms of oh, like nice. you're a quiet person and you play guitar and piano and you were out there being brave and being able to do it <laughs> and I was like I feel like inspired that I could do it as well oh that's awesome I feel like I'm glad that came across in some way at Splendor in the Grass because it's exciting to be asked to be to play those kinds mm. of things but I always just feel like, oh, my God. I know. <laughs> so It's a weird vibe. Outside even is a weird vibe for Outside music. is a weird vibe. I guess as a, f- as a festival goer as well, I, I, I guess I'm not really one. Yeah, i find that I just don't – don't, it's not a, an enjoyable space for me. No. I don't like the crowds and I don't feel like I can engage properly with the music, I yeah. guess. I just really like to see shows in small rooms. Me too. 
and to Me feel too. that connection. And when I'm on stage, that's f- so pre- preferable. Yeah. Um, when you yeah. can see the audience and feel them there and like kind of get a sense of yeah. the room being either with you or not with you. And Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. I've played like the, the festival shows that I've played with Regurgitator have just been you don't really connect with any people. You can't look anyone in the eyes really. Like you, it's all such a far yeah. away kind of weird experience. And in the big it, the big shows that I've played, I have way more moments what to think I wonder what I'm going to have for dinner or <laughs> like what am I doing with my life kind of questions that, yeah. that I do with small shows where yeah. I feel really engaged and yeah. I can sing to people. Or, the good thing yeah. about some band like Regurgitated though is that it's it kind of suited though to that kind yeah, of energy thing. and the atmosphere, yeah, and yeah. like and you can really imagine that really turning a crowd on at a festival. Yeah. But yeah. Um, and there are some festivals that do really lovely stuff in like the ones that are in the tents and the ones that are a bit more definitely. Those those can yeah. be really really nice. Yeah, I mean your that your set at Splendor was in a tent, um, you know, in in a big top. Yeah, it was in the yeah. Grant McLennan, I think. Yeah, it was so lovely to see. And it made me want to do it. Thanks, Saya. <laughs> <laughs> did you go to school with Josh Pike? Yeah. Is that a thing I remember? I did. Yeah. I went to school. Josh Pike was at Balmain Primary. So yeah. was Alex Lloyd. That's right. Um, and Rose Byrne and the Stones, Alana and Yale and yeah, Jake Stone. Wow. Such um, a creative area. Yeah. And Josh Zepps, who's now on the ABC. And other people like so many creative people wow. I don't know why that is but it's it also when I went to high school at Hunters Hill High um Sally Seltman from Seek yeah. Lover Keeper went to that school as well and um another bunch of kind of actors and creative like musicians and stuff and I'm not sure why that was I think Balmain when I was growing up in Balmain because it had been quite working class you know it was a dockyard you know, after colonisation, it quickly became a kind of dockyardy area and like heaps of pubs. But then it became after that kind of rough stage, it became really bohemian because it's right near the harbour and a lot of right. old sandstone houses and yeah. stuff. So a lot of, I guess, um, the parents' generation of kids I went to school with were often kind of, I guess, creative types yeah. themselves. So I've kind of lived in the inner west of Sydney pretty much all my life except for um, I'm, I lived in Austin, Texas for a little while. Did you? Before, yeah, when I was writing my first album oh. for, just, for just over six months. Wow. A, my partner at the time was studying there. Oh, yeah. So we both just lived there for that time. Wow. Yeah, it was great. So talk me through then like getting signed to Spunk and, you know, recording oh, yeah. your own music. Oh, that was that was a fun time because... I had lived in Texas and written pretty much all of that first record, which became On Night. And I got back from Texas and the partner that I'd moved there with, we split up almost as soon as we got back, which was really kind of, I mean, it was the right thing to happen. And we're really good friends now. But at the time I was sort of just like, what am I doing, you know? And I met this guy called David who was, he really turned me onto a lot of great music um, he's in a band called Peter Fonda now, oh, yeah. a really good band. Yeah. Um, and he was in a band then called The Woods Themselves. And he asked if I'd go sing on his record, which he was recording with Tony Dupay in yeah. the, in the um, South Coast. So I went down for a couple of nights maybe, I can't remember how long, but to, rec- to sing on David's record. And during that time I played Tony some of my songs that I'd written and he was super encouraging 
and said, why don't we demo your songs? So I remember we demoed them one night and I just liked how they sound. I liked Tony's recording style. And from then it sort of became, I sort of said to him, why don't we do, do a few properly? Yeah. And so I was thinking I'd make an EP but because everyone's supposed to make an EP, you know, sure. like that's the thing it's you the do. First step. Yeah, it's the first step. Yeah, stepping stone to album. Yeah, but I didn't really want to make an EP because I've never really liked EPs that much. Yeah, I, I never re- put on an EP. No, very I, rarely. I never put on an EP. Yeah. So I made an album and it took ages. Like mm. I would just, because I didn't have much money, I was working at a video store and I also had this job, music programming for airlines. Oh, this, wow. This job in Glebe, which was pretty funny. And so I would program for various airlines. Um, and... Yeah, I guess I was just working all the time, working two jobs to save money. And then I don't remember how long it took, but it would have taken six months probably or more even just going down to Kaima for maybe two or three days at a time every week or two weeks or something and recording with Tony and real like patchwork style recording, not really like straight up live recording so much. And then when I'd finished it, I sent it to two record labels, (laughs) Um, Trifecta in Melbourne who had architecture in Helsinki at the time. And I just really liked their whole kind of vibe yeah. and spunk. I just I just really liked both of those labels. Um, I think maybe I also sent it to Slanted and Enchanted, which oh, yeah. I don't think exist anymore. They had the Red Sun Band, who I really liked at the time. Um, and yeah, I, I guess Aaron got back to me and my friend Sam Shenazzi, I feel like, got in his ear. And <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he kind of... You know, really, we made Aaron listen to the listen to my demos. <laughs> yeah. Or my, I think it was by that stage I'd sent him maybe three or four songs from the album. Yeah. I feel like Sam had a hand in that. <laughs> um, but whatever happened, Aaron was convinced, and yeah, we met at this cafe in Glebe on my lunch break, and I've still got it. He had this Unicorns poster, you know that band, the Unicorns, yeah. who were a spunk band, and he yeah. just wrote on the back our record, the record deal. So what wow. the split would be, what money he was going to give me as an advance, and what money would be spent on advertising, wow. or whatever and did you both sign it we didn't sign it but he just gave it to me and that was the contract wow. for that for that album and at the time he used to call it indie gold was a thousand records yeah. he sold a thousand records that was like gold, indie gold. in the indie yeah. world and it sold more than that yeah so. indie <laughs> so platinum indie, <laughs> indie platinum <laughs> so and at that time spunk was hardly releasing any australian acts i think i was only maybe the second yeah it was just machine translations um and me and the rest of it was all overseas licensing but aaron was really keen to start doing australian stuff so yeah. from after me it became there's like you know it's been a huge australian roster yeah. well not huge but for us for a label like that pretty big australian roster yeah. since then and what a like fortuitous thing to be on a label where you get like all these amazing supports through the label. Well, yeah, that was kind of one of the things that I remember thinking at the time. I don't know if I thought of that myself or if someone else said that, but I thought, oh, yeah, because, I mean, I was just such an epic fan of the Spunk catalogue. Yeah, me too. And straight away, my, one of the first shows I did was like it was coming on to Spunk's I can't remember what it was, five-year or ten-year anniversary or something. So I got to open for Will Oldham, Bonnie Prince Billy in Melbourne and Sydney and Mark Kozlek in Perth and Adelaide. And, you know, I was just, like, shitting myself. Yeah, yeah. I felt like you were just supporting all of my favourite bands for a while. Like, every time anyone I loved came, you would be there as well. It was so great. Yeah, I felt like it was a pretty amazing time. I was very kind of green and just like had very big white eyes and just being like, oh, my God. (laughs) So you've worked with Tony pretty much since then. Um, 
Yeah, so I've worked, worked, worked a lot with Tony. I did one record, my third record in Nashville with Mark Nevers, yep. who did a lot of the Lamb Chop stuff and Bonnie Prince Billy yeah. and Silver Jews. He was a really funny guy. And the last record I did with a guy called Tim Kevin, who um, is in a band called La Huva, and he was in, one of the guitarists in Youth Group. Oh, yeah. And he's such a lovely guy. And, you know, by then Tony lives in Victoria now. Yeah. Um, and he has a kid and I had my, my, my daughter was really young when I made yeah. my last record and so it made a lot of sense because Tim lives really his studio is really close to my yeah. house and I really enjoyed working with him and we had I had Mick Turner come up to play some guitar beautiful which was really lovely and Brie and Jens from my band yeah. who've been in my band forever when I went to your book launch um, you know you've written two books now you were saying you had a new album coming out you had a book you're writing a new book you've got like you're so prolific like you probably are busier than you've ever been in your life and you've got so much output at the moment yeah the last few years has been extremely busy um I think I was really ready for that I'm really ready for the book stuff which is really intense work to write novels mm. but I'm one of those people who you know for whatever reason like feel like I kind of don't quite have a sense of my own achievements you know when you sure <laughs> you kind of um it's like they kind of exist a little separately when I'm in that creative mode of doing one like making an album or writing a book it's just yeah. everything in my mind yeah. sort of swirling around with it which I just love I love being in that zone um and then between creative projects is mainly thinking of what my next creative project might be. Um, so I need to actually remind myself more to kind of rest and be still. And I have that problem yeah. too. But I also like having a family really helps with that because yeah. I do just want to spend time with my daughter and my yeah. partner. And we do a lot of really nice um family activities and stuff, outdoorsy activities which is which I just really enjoy and I guess I value that a lot more than I used to do you find that writing prose is a completely different part of your brain than writing songs yeah it is a completely different part of your brain um like lyric writing is obviously it's, they're, they're both words but they feel so different to me um with prose it's so much about, I guess, the reader and the story and how to kind of pace that story and how to kind of let information unravel and unfold and what to say about characters. And, yeah. and I guess it's – my process is similar in terms of writing really instinctively as much as I can, just sort of going with it mm. and trying to sort of have an unfiltered feeling while I'm – in that space but then in the editing process you know second third draft yeah. I kind of love that bit it reminds me of being at university yeah um songwriting for me I've never really worked at in the same way that I worked at writing novels well some of your songs are pretty narrative yeah based. some of them are and there's some songs like a, there's a song I wrote called what I thought of you and I remember when I was writing the lyrics for that there was a couple of lines that I I mean some songs like I would just work on for so long until I get it just right yeah but you kind of carry it, carry them around with you in the rest of your life as opposed to sitting down with them. And there's a certain part of novel writing that is definitely the part that gets carried around and that sorts itself up out while you're maybe walking or bike riding or driving or, and those things will sort of sort themselves out in your brain. And I find that's really important to step away and let that kind of unconscious stuff happen and all of a sudden you think, oh, this is what needs to happen and the thought comes from nowhere. Yeah. And with songs I find that 
that's a huge amount of the process is that. Just um, reflection. Yeah, like kind of having a melody and just walking around with it for a week and slowly it fills itself in, yeah. in a way. Um, I've always, I think because I don't read music or write music, I feel like sitting down with songs and pushing and pushing at an instrument mm. for hours and hours, I often find both frustrating and fruitless. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I feel like I was always a bit more of a lazy songwriter. Um, but as a novelist, like very much, much more driven and hardworking. When you write your novels, do you make like a massive plan of each chapter and no, it just comes not out? Not at all. Really? And I met, um, I was talking to another writer that I saw the other day and she's writing her first novel and she's comp- meticulously planned it. And some novelists do that um, and I absolutely didn't do that. They call them... Um, Planners and pantsers, like oh. either you either plan or you're on the seat of your pants. Oh right! <laughs> Someone said that at a writer's festival the other day, and I'm definitely a you're pantser. A pantser. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Stephen King says it's okay to be a pantser because I read that book of his called On Writing, which is an invaluable book if you want to start writing any kind of prose. Um, and yeah, he was all about kind of um, sort of going for it and not thinking too much about where it's heading and I guess yeah I did that with both books I mean both books I had a kind of sense of where it was going to end up but no idea how I was going to get there wow so I just sort of it all just happened in the process of it yeah I feel like creatively I couldn't sit down and do it separately to the actual writing process because as you start you know a character does this and then they walk in and they go here and they do that and to sit down and not be in that and try and like nut it out or map it out I don't think I've got that brain I've yeah. got the other type of brain that's amazing that it would just sort of pour out of you that way yeah but I feel like for me it's what keeps the pace of the revelation fresh it keeps it kind of feeling like the pace is going with the reader might feel akin to the way that I was writing it hopefully. yeah oh, I totally get that I think I definitely felt that in both of your books like in the first book you really feel like you're part of the story. You, you instantly know that people go missing mm. and, and that's something that you need to know what yeah. happens to. Yeah. And similarly in the second one, it's like, okay, this guy died. What the fuck happened? You, you, <laughs> need, to, you need to keep reading. Yeah. So I imagine you have like a little bit of planning. I generally know what I'm doing in the chapter that I'm writing. Yeah. You'd be in trouble if you didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and it'd be nice to know a couple, maybe one or two chapters ahead. And then in your head you might have, you might have a... a handful of scenes that you know has to happen at some point yeah um but how to get there and how they're going to be linked and all that stuff will not be there it's amazing yeah it's an interesting process but when i read that stephen king book and he said that that's what you can do (laughs) that you have permission to do that and that so many writers do it that way it sounded so much more like songwriting to me that it made me feel like i could do it because with songs you know you find a melody and then you like a feeling tone comes with the melody and then sometimes a couple of words come out straight away and then you just have a sense of what, if you don't know what it's about, you know the sense of that feeling tone. Definitely. You know, you know, it's sort of not about in a lot of ways. Yes. Um, And then I guess I work the same way with writing fiction. You kind of, and if you hit a, if you hit a dead end or if you hit something that doesn't feel right, you kind of know that pretty quickly. You can double back. So when you write an album, do you ever have like a theme or a plan on songs or does that no. just kind of come out as well? No, that kind of comes out as well. I guess because albums to me always represent a certain time in your life. You know, I guess you'll write an album over a year or two or whatever it is for every per- each person. But to me, albums best 
a best reflect a kind of fragment of time. And so I always, I find with my albums, thematically they are always linked because these are my concerns in this fragment of time. Yeah. And so they've all kind of had sort of a natural connection within the songs. So yeah, I've never set out to be like, I'm going to write an album about this. And I've always thought that it would be quite unsuccessful to do so. But then again, um, PJ Harvey's Let England Shake completely... Yeah. Um, blew that idea out of my head and made me realise that in fact a concept album can be an incredible thing. Well, you've done a kids album. That's kind of a concept album. Yeah, I guess it is. But the the way I was writing those songs definitely all um, went together. It was really kind of stream of consciousness writing. And yeah, I guess I was definitely trying to write themes and that kids can relate to. Maybe that is the, my most themeish record. But I found that incredibly enjoyable and really creatively liberating project. I imagine it's challenging to to write something that is completely relatable to children. Uh, yes and no, because I always like to put some in-jokes in for the parents as yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I feel like... Mainly I was just trying to think like a kid. What's a parent's injury? I can't even think, but I just know that there's wordplay in there that mm. kids would not get. Yeah. That, that, that parents might go, ho, ho. Um, <laughs> because when I was writing as an adult, I was like, ho, ho. Yeah. Look at my clever wordplay, hoping that David Astle would listen yeah. to it. Regurgitator have just done a kids album oh, and there's cute. definitely those moments in there. Yeah. There's a song about a box and Quan says, can never get enough of the box play. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Um, well, that's definitely an adult joke. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I just feel like you're working, on, I guess, on two levels there. There are some kids' kids' albums that are just strictly for children and are really aimed, whereas my album is kind of, it was. I was hoping to make something that wouldn't drive parents insane. That was kind of part of the impetus that's really to make important. it. Yeah, and so there, you are kind of working on those two levels of making it palatable for the whole family. Yeah, and in, and kind of somehow entertaining for the whole family. I find it really interesting that um, when I meet people, because you know, you and I have known each other for quite a while. Mm. I find you a very funny person, and all of your music pretty earnest. <laughs> do, <laughs> yeah. you, um, do you think that? Do a, you agree? <laughs> Yeah, I feel like my kids' album allowed sides of my personality to come through that hadn't in my quite earnest music. Yeah, not um, like the the funny, dry sense of humour that you have in real life. I don't think that ever really comes through. No, I don't think it really does either. I think the album that I did called Team is probably the album, because I made it back-to-back -back with the kids' album, mm -hmm. it has a certain kind of playfulness to a lot of the lyrics um, that is... That what that was kind of missing before, um, and I feel like the kids' album kind of allowed that in a way because like an album like Under the Town is like really dark, mm. and um, I, I have no interest in writing those kinds of songs anymore. And after a time, the last record I did, I feel like also has a kind of buoyancy, like a lightness to it, which I don't think it's it's not. I don't think it has any humor in it particularly, but it's definitely got a different tone than the first album, for example. Mm. But I feel like a lot of that kind of humour has just all come out in the books, though. Goodwood particularly, like, is kind of a comedy in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, in Jean's voice, it's like this really kind of low-key Australian comedy. Yeah, um, I love that aspect of it. Yeah, and I really enjoyed yeah. writing that aspect of it. I found it really interesting having, like, a few friends that have written books now. It, you have the, your friend's voice in your head while you're reading it. Yeah. Um, my second book is in that kind of close third person and I feel like that there's a lot more separation there. Even though there's one character in the books 
Jean, the main the main character in Goodwood, and Benny in Cedar Valley. Yeah. Um, I guess they do they do both reflect certain elements of my of personality. Course. Yeah. Um, but then I guess I feel like me and everyone I've known is represented in some characters in oh, some absolutely. way. You know, like they yeah. all kind of it all kind of blends in. Yeah. True. Um, tell me about how you started working with Sally and Sarah and Seeker Lover Keeper. Um, back in the originally. Back in the day. Um, well, Sally, Sally was playing a show at the Factory Theatre in Sydney mm-hmm. and Sarah and I went. I think it was a New Buffalo show and afterwards we all ended up at the pub together and that was the first – I'm pretty sure that was the first time the three of us had hung out. Like I knew Sally and I toured with Sally. Um, I supported New Buffalo in 2005 yeah. on an Australian tour. And I knew Sarah as well because when Sarah and I first started, we actually had the same manager for oh, right. a brief moment. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, we all released our first albums in 2004. Yeah. So we all kind of knew each other's work and we're all big fans of each other as well. And Sarah and I went, you know, we're just raving to Sally about, we just love the show. And Sarah, I think, initially floated the idea that we should all tour together, but maybe do something more collaborative in terms of the show. Like we'd all, you know, play together somehow. And then that kind of morphed into an email chain, which I just found recently the other day, actually, in which Sally was like, hey, how about we don't just do that? How about we start a band? Like we could be a three-piece band. And she had the name, Seeker Lover Keeper, already. She said, here's my suggestion for a name. And me and Sally, me and Sarah were both just like, great. So done. Job done. <laughs> and but then at first we were going to be like a three piece and play our own instruments. And, you know, I, I was thinking I was wanting to play bass and maybe we wouldn't have drums and that kind of thing. Yeah. But then when we started kind of getting together, we kind of realised that the songs did really want a rhythm, a rhythm section. And I'm probably a terrible bass player. I mean, like I can, <laughs> I can cover myself on bass, yeah. but I realised that I'd probably want to be focusing more on yeah. other stuff. So that's when we decided that we would get a bass player and a drummer. And then the three of us would cover guitars and keyboards and yeah. singing so beautiful and you so you've just uh finished recording that album yeah it was eight years it'd be eight years or something between albums and which i can't believe that it's been that long that is a really long time Um, what i love about secret one of the many things i love about secret lover keeper is that you all have such different styles and such different voices and it comes together and it just sort of it transports you into a new world that's none of your, like the worlds that you get transported into separately with you guys. That's really nice because I feel like I'm, I feel that the, the new stuff we've done does, achieves that um, even better. Like I feel like the first one, because we've written all together this time, yeah. I feel like the songs are really like such an epic blend of the three of us yeah which is really nice because i can hear things that are so sarah and things that are so sally and things that are so me yeah and it's nice to have it all come together like an amalgamation yeah you said in an interview that you've turned down lots of opportunities that you maybe should have taken career-wise in the past (laughs) did i say that yeah do you remember i don't remember saying that (laughs) do you remember any of them um where you think maybe i should have done that I honestly can't remember saying that, but I mean, I definitely have said, I, I can be known to say no. Yeah. Um, it's mainly because the performing is not my favourite bit, like at all. The writing is your favourite bit? I just bit. like the writing mm. so much more than the performing. I like being by myself. Yeah. And I like, I mean, not that I don't have any friends or anything, but I am like a pretty introverted person and I like, like the idea of a day spent like you know 
partly with my family and the other part writing and maybe doing some exercise and being outside is like my perfect day um and reading as well because I love reading so the idea of when it comes to performance stuff I've turned down a lot of stuff because it's just too daunting for Mm. me like appearing on such and such or doing so like I just it just fills me with a feeling of oh I know that I'm just going to actually dread it and but does that make you sometimes think what Maybe I should do that if I'm dreading it. Uh, there's been some things that I've felt like that and then thought, yeah. Like, for example, I found that I did that Crowded House um, yeah. tour with the They Will Have Their Way tour. Like, that was at a, at a period in my life when I was suffering from really bad stage fright, which kind of all came out of that that Seeker Lover Keeper touring. Because I just think that when before that, my shows are just so low-key and no stress. Mm. And if I did, say I had a moment on stage where I was like, I actually have to run off the stage. Whoa. I felt like I could because it was my show. Yeah. So I'm fully responsible for that. And I would just have to say, I'm really sorry, you can all have your money back. Wow. But I felt so like... how bad it gets for you where you just you just. I would escape. sometimes feel like... I don't know if it, it... It's never really gotten that bad on stage that many times, but it's more like the worrying about it getting like that on yes. stage. But when I w- when that thing came up I was like so terrified of the idea of doing it because you're part of this big show and you kind of can't fuck it up you don't want to let anyone down no and much like I didn't want to let Sally and Sarah down yeah and that was one thing though that I thought no that I really wanted to do it yep. and I knew that it would be if I could do it it would be really enjoyable and that was one of the most enjoyable tours I've ever done like I'd loved it and I think I was also really proud of myself that I'd definitely done it but I did it with the help of a huge amount of beta blockers yes <laughs> <laughs> so and I still I still do rely on such things <laughs> to get me through is that how you combat stage fright beta blockers yeah beta blockers I took beta blockers once and I kind of got really bored on stage and I was like oh what's the point like I really missed the <laughs> adrenaline that yeah you well get. some people love that adrenaline and some people just love the performing you know like Sarah loves performing she yeah. loves singing on stage oh, she's a force oh she sure is yeah. and I whereas I just would mostly rather not although the the feeling you get though like of the feeling of doing a good show like that high yeah is a pretty unbeatable high it is. of feeling like that yeah um but at the same time yeah, I – it's just – and I think it's funny because people are always so surprised because I appear so relaxed on stage. Yeah, Because everyone you do. always says how relaxed I, I appear. And you're really funny and your stage banter is really great. Well, I feel like <laughs> – thanks. <laughs> I learn everything I know from Darren Hanlon. <laughs> well, you can't – I mean, him – Darren Hanlon and Dan Kelly are the two oh, world's Oh, yeah, I also learned a lot from Dan Kelly. Yeah. I, I did learn a huge amount from both. I just remembered my first tour supporting Darren – thinking how do you get up there and do that how do you get up there and just be the same person that you are off the stage um and it was through kind of touring with him and watching him and also touring with Dan because Dan and I toured together that I kind of I don't know I came out of my shell a bit and was able to be a lot more myself and not just myself but the myself who's like having the best time at the party yeah (laughs) it's like because I'm not always in that obviously not always in that mode but I do really now I really do enjoy that part of my show but I enjoy it more when it's my show yeah because I have the space to do that I can run my own show and if I feel like that's appropriate then that can be really fun and also that if you make people laugh it's immediately disarming and you feel so much better and I feel exactly that yeah like if if that happens then you generally the rest of the show feels pretty good um 
so yeah, it's probably like a coping, mecha- coping yeah, mechanism. Yeah, totally. It's for me too. <laughs> yeah. Do you, have you ever had a time when you haven't been able to play because of stage fright? Um, I've well, I guess those would be the times when I thought at this time in my life I can't say yes to that show or to you know it's like a TV like TV stuff. I just yeah. really, really don't want to do that and I find that really nightmarish but I've never had like a moment where I could like I was backstage and couldn't go on stage like it's not like that I'm I feel like I'm able to make decisions and then know how I'm going to feel about it at the time and I guess that's how I tend to look at it I tend to think I sort of try and put myself there and think how much is this going to like tax me (laughs) and then sort of try and work out if it's worth doing or not based on how much it might tax me because it's not just um I guess it just sort of takes out like a week of your life sometimes around preparing for it or just emotionally getting messed up by it or Definitely. whatever. Um, now I'm sounding like I'm incredibly neurotic, which I, did, no, which I kind I, of am. I can relate. This is why I'm interested is because I'm, I can absolutely relate to it. And I've had shows where um, when I actually, when I, when I toured with Blasco um, and we were playing theatres around the place and um you know, you could hear a pin drop between songs. I found that really nerve-wracking as a performer because I've always played in loud bands. Yeah. And so suddenly I was like, oh, my God, you can hear, like, every note. Yeah. And I got really stressed out on that tour. And I remember once um, before a show I was like, I could just pull the fire alarm and just then I won't have to do it. Oh, you know, it's got really yeah. anxious. I've definitely had those moments thinking, I would love it if this got cancelled yeah. for some reason. It was beyond <laughs> <Yeah>. my control <laughs> and I could just stay home. Um, but I guess that's ref- very much reflected in my life in the last, you know, mm. however long. Like, I would I mean, I would love to tour Seek Lover Keeper again and I'm really looking forward to us doing that Um because I do feel like I can take a beta blocker and I'll be okay. Um, you know what but, you're capable of. Yeah, and it, but it I always guess works out. Yeah, I guess I've just toned down the touring to a yeah. huge extent, um, and that's partly I think because, you know, when I was in a band with Brie and Jens, or Brie was my partner, and yeah. so we would have the best time touring because I was like, I love touring; it's the yeah. best fun ever. Um, because she was always there with me. Yeah, you're with your family. Yeah, but now, but then since we broke up, um, and she still has toured with me since then and plays on my record, and I love Reed. We're, yeah. re- we're such good mates. But touring now means going away from my partner and yes. going away from my daughter. daughter. Yeah. And that's just not that fun for me. Like, yep. it's really fun if they can come. And I love book tours because they can come on book tours because you do your event. You know, the latest it's it might early. be is 7 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> Usually it's earlier and then you can just go out for a nice dinner with your family and yeah. that's a nice time for me. That is really Although nice. you don't get the highs. Yeah. You've got to always weigh it up with, you know, yeah, right. you don't get the post-show high. You, reading out loud is not as... Um... <laughs> it's not the same, is it? <laughs> I love it how David Sedaris always says that. I read out loud for a living. <laughs> that's really funny. He does it so well, though. He does. He does it yeah, really well. Really I wonder does. if he gets nervous before shows or before reading out loud. Uh, look, the number of performers that I've met in my life, it's always surprising to me how many people suffer from really intense issues around performance. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. pretty scary. I mean, it's really like the most vulnerable you can be is in front of a crowd and yeah. you're open to judgment. I always feel like I'm such a schmuck complaining about stuff because I know, like I just feel like I have the best <laughs> like job, you know, like yeah. the, the fact that I can call it work, um, the fact that I can call kind of creative pursuits and creative endeavours work, I feel like it's an incredible privilege. Yeah. And, 
So I also feel like a bit of a schmuck when you complain about it. <laughs> Me too. Um, yeah. Do you ever want to just be like Harry Nilsson and record albums and never play live ever? Um, I just want to be like Harry Nilsson in general. Me too. Just because... Except for the drug and alcohol. Maybe except stuff. for that. But I mean, in terms of making a concept record, that album, The Point, I is one know. of I love the best albums ever. And just him in general, I just think he's such an incredible artist he's my favorite voice in music yeah i feel like he and he was so influential on you know the beatles and like these huge bands but he just doesn't he just sort of never really received he's quite a cult figure rather than being a mainstream figure and he yeah he's just an incredible and then he just got really fucked money wise by his manager oh really i didn't know that yeah it's really sad story Mm. and then also he lost his voice because he was competing and being a dick with john lennon having like a yelling competition or something oh god and then he broke his beautiful his beautiful vocal cords oh wow um but yeah he's he's my favorite and i i think it's really inspirational too like to to know that he had such bad stage fright and anxiety that he never played live. He hated it. Yeah, wow. Um, but still managed to make such a massive impression on the world and yeah. his audience. Yeah. So I want to ask you my last question, which is a question I ask everyone. Okay. Can you tell me the strangest show experience you've had or just a really strange thing that's happened to you because you play music? Again, I, well, I'm one of those people that finds it really hard to remember things. <laughs> That's um, fine. It can be anything at all. I've definitely had some show experiences which have been, you know, that like I've def- I've had a lot of fainters really? at shows, which is always something <laughs> that I never know what to do about. Like, you know, like when someone faints, <laughs> then the you kind of just think. Like the last time it happened, it was in Newcastle. It's happened in, in Adelaide as well. And it happened with Seek Lover Kiefer in Melbourne. It's because the bloody church was too hot and they didn't wow. ha- let anyone have bottled water. Um, that's happened that's three times yeah it's three times and I feel like it happened in another one but I'm I'm having a blank but yeah it's really hard to know what to do because you you don't want to I don't I always feel for the fainter because if it was me like I wouldn't want the whole show to stop and the spotlight to go on that person and everyone to turn around because that (laughs) I would just be so mortified but at the same time you don't want to appear kind of careless careless on stage yeah you want to make Um, sure everyone's okay exactly and so both times I've kind of had this thing where both times when it was my show I can't remember what happened to the sequel of a keeper I think maybe we didn't know about it until afterwards but as the ones that are my show like I actually saw that happened Um, and it's that thing of like being in a venue that's small enough to be able to make contact with the fainter's friends (laughs) (laughs) and getting some kind of thumbs up and like both times I just kept playing, kept playing, kept playing, just kept playing guitar. Yeah. Um, one of them was with Brian Yens and they just, we all just kept like kind of playing on a loop, loop. um, while I kind of watched and tried to suss out if this was like how much of an emergency it was. And then in the Newcastle one, I was just by myself. So I just kept kind of playing oh a lot. I kept playing and playing, kind of watching. And the friends, I think, could sort of, one of them sort of put a thumbs up. Oh, um, and the other one, I think the, the friends kind of dragged the fainter around. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the one in Newcastle, like an ambulance arrived and stuff. Whoa. Um, because I guess someone, you know, called because that happens. And I guess yeah. people are not always, maybe venue owners are not always n- n- aware of what's going on. Or, yeah. Um, but that was definitely kind of a strange experience. But also like I'm just a mass. I can, I've also just had moments where I've just been like, you know, totally goofy. Like the time when we were supporting um, Augie March. We did a few shows with Augie March and 
it was one of those tours where I can't remember what else we were doing at the time. We'd done a bunch of shows with them. We'd also been on our doing our own shows and me and Brie and Jens were just absolutely rooted. Like we were so tired and it was not the first show we'd played with Augie March. So we did the thing that you're not supposed to do, which is to start loading out while oh yeah, the, while the playing. main act is playing, which is just so not – it's not cool, you know. <laughs> like Sometimes we, you got to do what you got to do. Well, sometimes you got to do what you got to do and we obviously had um, – we'd obviously kind of rationalised that to ourselves <laughs> and it was at the corner in Melbourne so there's like a side, um, side stage access to the parking lot out the back and I – we were trying to be really quiet. We're just like, you know, they'll understand. Like they know how tired – like I think they knew how tired we were and they knew that we'd been on the road for ages or whatever. So we're like, it'll be fine, you know. So we were like loading out. <laughs> and I said to Brie, it's like because Brie was getting some drums and I got her traps case, the drums yeah. traps case. And I said, I'll get the traps case. And so I like was really quietly – I mean, they were playing pretty loud. Yeah. But like quietly kind of wheeled it up the side of the stage and then kind of got to the car park and kind of was pulling in – like I kind of felt a snag <laughs> – and turned around and I had dragged Augie March's guitar rack into like full of guitars into the car park behind the corner while the guitar tech kind of was walking out to me like looking like he was going to absolutely kill me. And I was like, oh, oh. I think we need those. It was don't take those. terrible. I don't even know if, um, if Glenn or anyone from Augie March knows that that happened. <laughs> At least they didn't fall out of the rack. They that didn't would have fall been out of the really rack. They were all in the rack. Disastrous. They were all safe in the rack. But And I probably only dragged them, like, what, a metre yeah. into the car park? Yeah, it it's a heaps. small little. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, was, that oh. wasn't my best moment. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me.